I'm Shelley Schlender. This is an extended version of a story that we broadcast on the How on Earth Science Show. It features Longmont beekeeper Tom Theobald talking about recent studies involving some pesticides and how they're hurting the honeybees. I'm Tom Theobald. I own the Niwot Honey Farm and I've been a beekeeper in Boulder County, Colorado for 36 going on 37 years. Tom, you've also been somebody who's studying what's going on with the bees and colony collapse. You've been on 60 Minutes. You've been in the center of a lot of controversy about some of the pesticides used for crops around bees. Any serious beekeeper has had to pay close attention to the environment that we live in, and there have been some significant changes that have taken place in the last 15 years that have had a dramatic adverse effect on not only the honeybee, but the broader environment as well. Um, the genetically modified crops have gotten a lot of uh, exposure. What really has come in under the radar is the companion technology that's closely tied to genetically modified crops, and that is the family of systemic pesticides, primarily a, a group called the neonicotinoids chlorinated nicotine compounds. These are often called natural pesticides because they're based on nicotine, but you don't think they're very natural. Well, I guess you could call the atom bomb natural because it's based on the atom. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> no, they're not natural at all. Although I will say that nicotine has been used for hundreds of years for in insect control, and it's been well known, and it's been used widely. I know when I first began gardening, I think I had a little jar of nicotine on my uh, shelf. It, um, but these these are things that have been amped up and and bear little resemblance to, to the parent. These are, these are chemical concoctions. And this year, we've had three studies that zero in on these neonicotinoids yes. as potential strong parts of the colony collapse. There's a study from Purdue that came out in January, and just this Thursday, there are two studies that have come out explaining in greater detail how these pesticides may be hurting the bees. This gets more intriguing the further we go, because these compounds appear to have numerous modes of action, uh, all, all the way from just killing the insect outright immediately to a lingering and cumulative death or the disruption of, of things that are very basic to the functioning of the insect or to the colony. So these, these are, are very insidious products. And you really couldn't design a worse pesticide. Just let me describe very briefly what these neonicotinoids are, what the science is revealing to us. They're water-soluble, which means that they are drawn up by the vascular system of the plant and transported to all parts of the plant. They are also uh, mobile in groundwater and surface water because they're water-soluble. They are persistent, 
in heavy soils in uh, Saskatchewan, they found that the half-life was 19 years. Now, if you extrapolate that, that means that it will take those soils over a century to purge themselves of that chemical. What's equally important is we're finding that tiny, tiny amounts can have profound effects. And to make that even worse, Professor Hank Tenekes in Holland has found, and, and he's basing this in part on his 25 years of experience in cancer research, he's found that the effect these compounds have on the central nervous system of the insect are cumulative and irreversible. So not only will tiny amounts have profound effects, but tiny amounts over time are the equivalent to a massive dose all, of, all at once because, according to Tenekes, these are cumulative and irreversible. Well, you know, Tom Theobald, closer to home, there's the study from Purdue University Department of Entomology that was published in January this year indicating that samples of fields that don't have plants on them right now, samples of plants close to fields that have sprayed, been sprayed with these insecticides, samples in many places have these neonicotinoids in them, in the roots, in the flowers, in both, and more dead bees close to where there are traces of this toxic material. And it's not just staying on the field where it's been sprayed, and it's not just staying on the field for the time period that it was sprayed. What the Purdue study has done is it has affirmed many of the things that we have been saying all along. It's been the most widely read among the public, I think, but there are a number of other studies which have found had similar findings. This is not new information to those of us who have been paying attention to the effect of these chemicals, but this, this presented in a more orderly uh, supportable fashion. There's another set of studies that has just come out that is talking even more about the ways that these neonicotinoids can be harming both bumblebees and honeybees. Again, we've known about the effect on the bumblebees for quite some time. I believe there was a study done about four years ago that concluded that four of the major bumblebee species were in steep decline with some of them approaching extinction. Um, and that's part of the broader effect of this family of chemicals because not only does it affect honeybees, it affects other pollinators, it affects any insects which come in contact with the commodity crops as a food source. And, and the bumblebees are one of those. Now you had two years ago presented the issue that the studies that were used to clear these pesticides and say they were safe were rather ridiculous studies because do you want to describe your issue with the studies that were done in the United States to say these chemicals are safe? Well, they weren't even done in the United States. They were done in Canada and they were done on a minor crop called canola as opposed to corn. We have about 90 million acres of corn in the United States and corn is a very rich source of pollen for the honeybees. It's not high in nutritional value, but it's abundant. So corn is a major uh, protein source for the honeybees when the corn is pollinating. 
uh, instead of using corn, they use canola, and they put four colonies of bees on two and a half acres of treated seed. The bees, however, were free to roam over thousands of acres of untreated seed, and they used that to conclude that this product is safe for bees. Well, it's ridiculous. My 12-year-old granddaughter rejected it as unsound science, and yet the EPA found it to be scientifically sound initially. This was part of the sleight of hand to get this thing on the market, but it's, it's even more interesting than that because it has now been on the market for nine growing seasons and has yet to meet the requirements of registration because when Bayer came back and asked for subsequent crops to be approved, the EPA scientists reviewed that life cycle study and found it to be unacceptable. So one of these neonicotinoids, clothianidin, has been in use for nine years and the EPA refuses to take any steps not only to remove it from the market but to reduce its use in any way. The most, cur the most curious thing is that it appears that clothianidin came onto the market in 2003 not because it was a unique answer to some insect scourge, but because Bayer's patent on imidacloprid, the first neonicotinoid, was about to run out. So we've suffered nine years of agony to protect Bayer's market share, and the EPA has been complicit in this. Now, is this a pesticide that is used in small scale or is it used everywhere? Well, it's pretty much universal and it's pretty much global. I, uh, I did some rough calculations and it appears that it's being used regularly on over 200 million acres of American farmland and an untold number of acres of urban and suburban land because it's used widely for control of tree insects, of turf-borne insects. It's used widely on golf courses. I'll bet that if you checked with your local municipalities, you'll find out that it's being used on soccer fields and baseball fields and who knows what all. So there's no safe haven for any of these insects. We've been saturated in these chemicals. And you originally objected to the EPA approval because you said that having a small place where you'd sprayed a little bit of this pesticide, but then letting the bees roam free would be like trying to figure out if a food was poison for cattle in a small enclosure, but leaving the gate open. Yeah, I well, I use, I use the analogy of uh, a Wyoming rancher who is having a problem with a... A, a poisonous weed and it's affecting his cattle so he decides he wants to determine just what the danger is and he plants two and a half acres of this noxious weed and he puts four cows on that two and a half acres uh, unfortunately that two and a half acres is located in the middle of thousands of acres of rich Wyoming prairie land and where do you think those cows go and what do you think that uh, noxious weed represents in their diet? This is what they were trying to do, and they had the audacity to call this sound science. So in other words, they had not enclosed the bees. They were free to roam over all kinds of unsprayed fields, and they probably did. 
Bees typically will forage over thousands of acres and they will focus on those plants which are most productive and they will range out for a mile, two miles in some cases, up to four or five miles. So they will cover thousands of acres and I calculated, I don't have the figure before me, but I calculated what that two and a half acres represented as a part of their total forage area and it was something like point zero 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 there were at least four zeros eight it was it was that small of a portion of their forage area it was ridiculous well and so we have these new studies that have just come out this last thursday one by penelope whitehorn from the university of sterling in the united kingdom where they did more to control for things like where do the bees forage. Uh, they used low levels of a neonicotinoid called imidacloprid. And then they enclosed the fields where the bees were foraging so that they could keep an eye on them. And they found that these bees that were put in that situation, these were bumblebees, gained less weight. And they also were smaller colonies and they had fewer queens, 85% fewer queens. So that one showed a pretty significant effect. Yes, and it's having it's having the same effect on the honeybee, and we see that in the honeybee because they're managed. Because as a beekeeper, I participate with those bees intimately almost on a daily basis. I know what's going on in their world. Their, their world is my world. And, and uh, it's having the same effect on the bumblebees and many of the other uh, pollen and nectar feeding insects, even perhaps more importantly, or at least as importantly, it appears to have a very detrimental effect on the soil itself. It's, it's toxic to soil organisms, to microbes, to earthworms. In effect, it sterilizes the soil. And we should be greatly concerned about that, and apparently are not. We're mining the farmland of America, some of the richest farmland the world has ever known, and we're mining it. We're taking things out and putting nothing back. Well, this other study that came out of France is about more problems for the bees from these pesticides. And this was another intriguing study because they did so much to be tracking what's happening. They actually put little radio frequency tags on free-ranging honeybees that were exposed to some of these chemicals and compared how they foraged and came back to bees that were not exposed. And what they determined was that the treated bees were about two or three times more likely to die while away from their nests, probably because the pesticides interfered with their homing systems. Well, it can interfere with their homing, uh, their homing abilities. It can... It, some of these effects are very subtle. One of them is it interferes apparently with their grooming behavior. Well, you think, what's that got to do with anything? Well, it turns out that it's very important for their health and for cleansing them of potential pathogens. And, and Bayer itself, as I recall, touts this very uh, effect in the product that they promote for termite control. 
and termites are another social insect just like the honeybee so it can it can interfere with their grooming behavior then they don't clean the parasites off of themselves and in that way they're more likely to be infected by other things exactly and in a more direct way we also are seeing from the science that's emerging that these this family of chemicals compromises the insect's immune system in effect as one uh, scientist has said it it's the wildlife equivalent of AIDS people don't die of AIDS they die of those things that AIDS makes them vulnerable to and that's what's happened in part to the honeybees they've become susceptible for a whole host of things that were they healthy would not be of any great concern it seems like for some time now, for over a year, for maybe two or three years, the EPA has been on the verge of responding to all this, both publicly and with policy. And do you think they are yet? No, I think, unfortunately, that uh, I think the working level people of the EPA really are committed and would like to do the right thing. And I think that's evidenced by the position that the EPA scientists took back in 2003. They want to protect the people. They want to protect the environment. But what's been hap what's happened is the management level has been so corrupted that it's it's it just acts in service to these mega corporations, and and we're not being protected. And it needs to change. Some of these people need to be removed from their positions. Now, Tom Theobald, you did say that the EPA. What was it last year? removed their okay on the neonicotinoids as having been approved in a valid way. Well, no, they what they what the scientists did was they re-reviewed that original study and concluded that it was not valid, that it was not acceptable, that it could be it could not be used to qualify this product for registration, but EPA management has chosen to do nothing and and confuse the argument. It's been well over a year now since major uh, leading beekeepers and several environmental groups asked that it be removed from the market for failure to qualify for registration and the EPA has avoided that decision and continues to avoid that decision. Has there been another study that's been presented by Bayer or some of the other makers of this pesticide that are more robust and would meet scientific standards in a better way? No. The, the simple answer is no. They fail to come up with it. We're getting all kinds of arguments, all kinds of discussion, but no. And what people need to realize is we are out of time. We cannot ponder these questions endlessly. We are out of time. We have frittered away the luxury of time. How are your bees this year? They're terrible. I'm probably, this may be my last year as a production beekeeper. I simply cannot resurrect this operation from the ashes each year and go on. You mean that so many bees have died over the winter? It's unsustainable. Let's say that you were a rancher. You had a cow-calf operation with 30, with, with 100 mother cows, and you lost 50% of those every winter. So now you have to keep back part of your calf crop to replace your mother cows and it's going to take a couple of years maybe three for those calves to come online as mother cows well you know where that line goes you don't have to be a math major it's two steps backward and one step forward and a tremendous amount of of work 
to get there and it's just not working and it's not working nationally we're quibbling over the science and and i think the science is important but we've had a global field experiment wherever these chemicals have been introduced we've seen seen these dramatic losses and as a people we need to face this question and deal with it this is a huge environmental concern that goes far beyond the bees tom theobald all of this criticism is focused right now on the neonicotinoids however if we did similar studies of other pesticides that have been out there would we end up seeing similar problems if we put tiny radio frequency ID tags on honeybees for any kind of pesticide that they were exposed to? Would we see that they messed up where they went? If we took any kind of colony of bumblebees and exposed them to a low level of pesticide, would they be sicker as colonies later on in the year? Could it be that we're just focusing and vilifying this one pesticide when actually there's others out there that are bad as well? There are some others that we are aware of. There may be others that we are not aware of because, unfortunately, the environment has been subjected to numerous chemical compounds. Um, what we do know, though, and what the science is showing us is that these neonicotinoids are a major player in this that they are a major contributor to this uh, problem. One of the difficulties that people have in understanding it is the chemical industry very subtly, they co-opted the vocabulary right in the beginning. And you'll hear CCD repeatedly, colony collapse disorder. And if your listeners go away with nothing other than this, it is that colony collapse is not a disorder it is not a syndrome it is a symptom it is just one of the manifestations of what's going on out there in the environment and there are many instead it's been used for this overarching syndrome disorder and if any of these other things don't quite fit under that they sort of get minimized or dismissed well they're all a consequence of the same thing, these neonicotinoids. The collapse can express itself in many ways. Some of the colonies can come, come down with pathogens of one kind or another. Others become disoriented. All of them become unproductive. In my case, my business is based upon honey production. And if I can't keep this operation vital enough to produce a honey crop at the end of the year, it's over. Well, Tom Theobald, if we took out the neonicotinoids, what would happen to agriculture? Would agriculture collapse? Yeah, it would be difficult because what's happened is these farmers have been led down the garden path. Let's say that you're a corn farmer, Shelley, and I come to you with all these claims about what this stuff is going to do for you. And, and for a short term, it's going to help and it's going to improve your bottom line a little bit. But what it's going to do is it's going to do that at a cost. Okay, and that cost is going to reveal itself not too far down the road. And here are some of the costs. The genetically modified crops and the systemic pesticides are there constantly. They're not selective. 
So they're the exact opposite of what we have been had drummed into us for years, which is integrated pest management. They they and what what is integrated pest management? Integrated pest management is you only use these chemicals when absolutely necessary and when the insect problem reaches a certain threshold. You don't just go out there and douse everything all the time. Oh, and you choose a pesticide which will disappear once it's been used. So it's 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 life is short. Yeah, that's part of it too. These are always there. So the pressure on the insect world and the pressure on the plant world is enormous toward selection of resistant varieties. And we're already seeing them. We're seeing resistant insects. We're seeing resistant pest plants. And what's the answer to that? Well, the chemical company's answer to that is to modify these crops even further so that they're resistant to more chemicals. So now we'll have a crop that's not only sprayed with glyphosate, Roundup, but will be sprayed with 2,4-D, an age-old herbicide. And now the farmers are dosing. If you talk to these practicing farmers, the the propaganda has been that these systemic pesticides reduce the pesticide inputs in American farmland. You talk to some of these producing farmers off to the side, and they'll tell you they're doing multiple applications in addition to these crops. But here's the key. This is the old company store model. What have the corporations done? They've done what corporations do very well or badly depending on your perspective they acquire an asset and they turn it to their own advantage and that's exactly what they're doing with the soil quality in america they're sucking the life out of the soil and they're turning it to their profit five or ten years down the road what is the farmer left with okay you're the corn farmer now you've been using this stuff for ten years and your soil is adobe because you've killed off all the earthworms, you've killed off all the soil organisms, you've sucked the life out of it, you've mined it, okay? So now what are you gonna do? Well, if you wanna grow anything on that piece of real estate, where are you gonna go for the seed? You're gonna go to the seed companies. Who owns the seed companies? Where are you gonna go for the herbicide? Where are you gonna go for the pesticide? Where are you gonna go for the fertilizer? And if you have a crop, who are you gonna sell it to? This is the old company store model on a grand scale, and American farmers have been sucked into it beautifully. Well, Tom Theobald, we're talking about neonicotinoids mostly here. (laughs) And my question is, if we were to eliminate the neonicotinoids and we were to see what happens to the bees, what if the bees didn't get better? What next? We're all in trouble because the bees have to get better. The bees are an indicator of the health of the world. More, more so than just my economic health as a beekeeper. If, if the bees are still having problems, we need to make more changes. The bees are our indicator species. Are you sure that the bees won't adapt to these changes? If you were to breed bees to be more robust and resilient against the neonicotinoids, Couldn't that solve the problem? Shelly, I'm 69 years old. I know you're much younger, but how many thousands of years do you and I have to wait for these changes? Yes, a bee might adapt to this bizarre environment, but it would take 
many, many, many generations, much longer than you and I have to, to twiddle away. Is your hope that at some point the EPA will respond and ban these pesticides? You know, I'm not sure. A ban, an outright ban, given the entrenchment of these products in American agriculture would be very difficult. So I think it needs to be something in between, an orderly removal of these products so that the farmers have an opportunity to adjust. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure that an outright ban is the answer. And it may already be too late, Shelley. It may be already to be too late for the American pollinators. The, the land may be so poisoned over such a period of time that we won't pull out of this for a long, long time. It's like I said, if you were to stop applying these chemicals to the soil today, in most cases, it would take years or decades for the soil to purge itself of that chemical, and small amounts can have profound effects. So could we ask for a worse picture? There, there is one thing I want to mention. There was a petition, a legal petition, filed with the EPA last Wednesday, which uh, calls upon them to address three questions. The first is the status of clothianidin, the one that has failed to meet the requirements of registration. The second is a review of their overall process of conditional registration because it's, it appears that it's been seriously abused and a more general view of their conduct as regulators and protectors. And it's my understanding that the EPA is legally obligated to respond to those questions. So Who's, who submitted those it questions? It was submitted by uh, the Center for Food Safety, the Pesticide Action Network of North America, and Beyond Pesticides. And then there were other individuals, groups that were signatories. For example, the, the uh, Colorado beekeepers, the Boulder County beekeepers were in support of that petition and were signatories. And there were others. But the primary organizers of that were those three. Center for Food Safety, PANA, and Beyond Pesticides. This is big, Shelley. This is big. This is much bigger than we thought. Well, Tom, Tom Theobald, Longmont Beekeeper, good luck with what you do. Thanks, Shelley. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is an extended version of an interview that we did with Longmont Beekeeper Tom Theobald. For more interviews like this, go to our website, howonearthradio.org. Thank you.